This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. U.S. troops will start leaving Afghanistan this summer to meet President Biden's goal to have them out by September 11th. A senior administration official tells the Wall Street Journal those troops will deploy across Asia. They'll continue gathering intelligence and keeping military capabilities available in the region. A Navy veteran and former congressman will be the next Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness if the Senate confirms him. Gil Cisneros served one term as a congressman from California. Defense News reports Cisneros was a member of the House Armed Services Committee and the House Veterans Affairs Committee. The goal of the Pentagon should be, quote, realizing the limit of American military might, according to the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee. Congressman Adam Smith says budget analysis should focus on how the department can start spending money better. USNI News reports Smith says the military and Congress should talk about capability instead of the numbers of ships, planes, and other hardware. U.S. Northern Command's reviewing the results of a global information dominance exercise that applied artificial intelligence and machine learning. The commander of NORTHCOM, General Glenn Van Herc, says the exercise was a sample of the power of AI. Bob Work is former Deputy Secretary of Defense. He's vice chair of the National Security Commission on AI. Bob, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What is your sense of how mature AI capabilities are becoming across the department? Well, it's great to be here, Francis. Thank you for having me. Um, I really believe that the momentum behind AI and AI technologies in the department is starting to build across the department, in the services, at OSD, in our research and development activities. So we really are starting to move out relatively smartly. The uh, exercise that you mentioned was billed as an information dominance exercise and it used artificial intelligence, particularly machine learning, uh, to bring in all sorts of data from multi-domain sensors and from open source and to fuse it and have the machine learning go through the mountains of data, which would be beyond any human's ability to really kind of comprehend. And it picks out patterns. It uh, develops inferences from the patterns. It can make predictions from the patterns. And it was designed to show how AI machine learning would be able to help us in making faster, more relevant decisions. You were at a news conference at the Pentagon last week with the leader of the Jake, uh, General Groen, and you talked about, you said this, AI is not a single technology, it's a bundle of technologies, and you went on to outline the AI stack. I'm not sure people have been thinking about artificial intelligence in that way. Why is it important to think about these six things? We'll outline those in a minute. But why is thinking about AI that way uh, so important, Bob? Well, some people, Francis, tend to think that AI is a single technology. It's not. It's a bundle of technologies. And it has discrete components that allow it to uh, have the power that it does. And you mentioned the six parts. There's talent, 
you know, the people who make the algorithms and who apply them. There's the data that drives the algorithms. There's hardware, there are the algorithms themselves. There are the specific applications that the algorithms are uh, being used for. And then there's the integration of all of these things. And the, the AI stack has all of these and you can't concentrate on just one. You have to concentrate on all six. You said at this news conference that we are ahead of the Chinese in three of these areas and they are uh, ahead of us in three areas. Should we be alarmed by that, Bob, or is that just the nature of competition in the world we live in today? Well, we're constantly asked, Francis, who's ahead? Who's ahead in the race? And this, unlike in the Cold War where we would send U-2s or satellites over the Soviet Union, we'd be able to count the number of silos of ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles. We'd be able to look at the ships uh, that were tied up and kind of determine what their capabilities were. It's really hard to do that with AI. It's algorithms. Um, and a lot of times you won't know whether you have the lead until you're in a competition head up and the other side is using their algorithms and you're using yours. And that's when you'll find out who's in the lead. But as a commission, what we did is we tried to take a look at the strengths of China as we understood them and the strengths of the US as we did understand them. And we concluded that the United States has a lead in talent. We're still the global magnet for talent. And we will continue to be if we can get our immigration policies correct. Um, we, have, we know we're ahead in hardware and the West more broadly, um, South Korea, the Netherlands, Japan, uh, the United States has the hardware to make these very, very complicated and advanced computer chips. And we believe that we're ahead in algorithms. Uh, you know, our academy and uh, our really vibrant business community are very, very good at making AI algorithms. So we think we have a lead in talent, hardware, and algorithms. And we judge that the Chinese have a lead in data, primarily because they don't have any privacy concerns. They can just forget about privacy concerns and use data as they see fit. The second thing that they're, uh, we think they're ahead on is applications. They have proven extraordinarily capable of deploying applications at scale uh, for computer vision, for population surveillance, things like that. And we think that they're ahead in integration, not because they're better at integration than we are, but because they actually have a strategy and a plan to integrate all aspects of the AI stack. It is their desire to surpass the United States in all six of the areas of the AI stack by 2030. And they're pushing hard to allow them to do so. Uh, we just have, we have less than a minute left. You made an interesting observation that uh, concerned me a little bit. If China ever took over Taiwan, peacefully or otherwise, the chip factories there would immediately give China the advantage in hardware. Is That's the major geophysical or uh, geopolitical potential development here, isn't it, Bob? Yes, yes it is. I mean. The hardware is really like the oil of the 21st century. A lot of people think that that is, but the hardware itself to make the chips, it's very, very important to the competition. 
one of the commissioners says we're a hundred miles away from being two generations ahead in hardware to being two generations behind. And what he meant by that is exactly as you said, if Taiwan was forcibly incorporated into the People's Republic of China uh, and we did not have access to the chips that are made on that island, then we would be at a severe disadvantage. Bob Work, thanks very much as always. Great to have you back on the program. Always great to be here, Francis. Thank you. Up next, a new top line for the Pentagon. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the number and the surprise for the department and the defense industrial base. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. President Biden's new top-line budget designates $715 billion for the Defense Department. That new proposal would cut out overseas contingency operations spending. Todd Harrison's director of the Aerospace Security Project, the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Todd, welcome. Thanks for coming on. It's a big deal to get rid of the OCO budget that some people have been proposing for as long as there's been an OCO budget. What's your takeaway from the way that this budget proposal moves the money? Yeah, this would be a big shift uh, when it comes to how the defense budget is structured, but it's probably not uh, the big change that a lot of people were expecting. So they are eliminating the portion of the budget that they designate as being overseas contingency operations funding, right? Uh, and that has been, you know, for several years now, around $68, $69 billion a year. Uh, but the money does not get eliminated. It just gets relabeled and put into the base defense budget. Uh, so it does not actually decrease the total amount of defense spending. It just relabels it. What's the potential ramification, not necessarily this year, but in out years, given that we learned uh, today President Biden's proposing eliminating one of the overseas contingency operations? If, if the mm -hmm. operation doesn't continue, does the money need to continue? Yeah, well, then you have to look in the details of what had been in the OCO budget. And of that $68, 69000000000 billion, only about 15 to $20 billion of it was the incremental cost of ongoing operations in Afghanistan and support for the Afghan government and the Afghan military. Uh, so some of that money, if we do indeed actually remove all of our forces from Afghanistan, you know, some of that 15 to 20 billion will likely go away. Those are costs that we will not need to incur in the future. Some of it will probably remain, though, as long as we, you know, try to continue to support uh, the Afghan government and building and training their military so that they can, you know, effectively counter uh, Taliban and other terrorist organizations that might try to take root in that country. Um, so, you know, the potential savings from completely removing all U.S. troops in Afghanistan, we're probably looking at something on the order of five to ten billion dollars a year in the future of cost avoidance. What else did you find noteworthy in the, uh, the budget proposal? <laughs> the most noteworthy thing is that there aren't details. Uh, and, you know, that's what we're expecting. That's the nature of a skinny budget is it just gives you the top line number. So the total top line number for the Department of Defense, $715 billion. That compares to the current level 
uh, of funding for DOD. The total number is $704 billion for the current fiscal year. It's a slight increase, but it's not an increase that really keeps pace with inflation. Uh, and so, you know, that is that is the starting point now for negotiations with Congress. You know, and it's worth emphasizing that this is just going to be a request. It's ultimately up to Congress what they appropriate. And what we're really looking for is the, the detailed budget request that's not expected to come out until sometime next month. And speaking of those negotiations with Congress, a uh, lot of reports yesterday about the remarks of the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, Adam Smith. He's an authorizer, not an appropriator, but he's being he's really staking out territory that he wants to see a lot different results, a lot different approach from the department about how they spend, how potentially could that manifest itself in appropriations and not just in authorizations? Yeah, well, I think, you know, you, you raised the, the big point is that he's on an authorizing committee. Uh, so what that indicates is that at least the House Armed Services Committee is going to, you know, be doing a lot more intensive oversight. Uh, they will probably be, you know, requiring or requesting uh, much more you know, information from the department about how they build their budget, how the funding is being used. They'll be looking for more efficiency initiatives. Uh, and I think some of the major weapons programs are gonna come under increased scrutiny uh, in the House Armed Services Committee. Ultimately though, it is not clear how that's gonna translate into changes in appropriations because, you know, we see this year to year, a lot of times there are uh, distinct differences between what the authorizers want to see in the budget and what the appropriators actually put in the budget. And at the end of the day, it's the appropriations that count when it comes to the defense budget. All right, about a minute left. What will you watch moving forward, Todd, when we get either more details on this budget uh, request from the president or from the uh, authorizing and appropriating committees in, the, in Congress? The big thing I'm looking forward to next is when the full budget request comes out. Uh, the timing of that is still a little bit unclear. Uh, I'll tell you that if they push it much later into May, then we're looking at the latest uh, any defense budget request, any government budget request uh, from an administration will have ever come out. Um, and so in, in the history of our country, this will, you know, could potentially be the latest request ever. But in that, that's where we will see the detailed breakdown uh, of where they're putting the money. And I'll be in particular looking for the division of money, the allocation of money among the military services. And then within that, be looking at, you know, how are each of the services spending the money? Are they trying to reduce force structure? Are they trying to maintain or increase investments uh, in modernization programs? And what is the balance that they try to strike in this budget request? Todd Harrison, thanks very much as always. Thank you. Up next, keeping the military ready to fight tonight. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the good news and bad news in the military's readiness campaign. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of the show, it's on GovMatters.tv. Welcome back. The Pentagon has a plan to recover readiness, but the Government Accountability Office says the Defense Department can do more to establish metrics for readiness. GAO says readiness varies by domain over the last several years. Diana Maurer is Director of Defense Capabilities and Management Issues at GAO. Diana, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. The work that you and your team did focused on something called the Readiness Recovery Framework. What is that framework and how does it work? 
Sure. So uh, when you think about the last 20 years or so, of the military has been essentially in a period of nearly nonstop conflict in one way or another in different places around the globe. And in more recent years, there was increasing concern at the Pentagon as well as on Capitol Hill about what that meant for the overall readiness of the force. So uh, Congress and the Pentagon and NDOD more broadly embarked on this effort called the Readiness Recovery Framework which is a, a systematic way for the various military services to uh, take some resource investments they're getting from the Congress in terms of extra money to put that towards improving readiness and having a consistent way of reporting on those results, as well as hopefully clear goals and measures to track progress along the way. I teased this a few minutes ago, Diana, as good news and bad news. And I said that for this reason, you write, readiness increased in the ground domain, declined in the sea domain between fiscal 17 and 19. Rating changes were mixed in the airspace and cyber domains. What did you see within any of those individual domains that was either uh, reason for encouragement or reason for pause? Sure, so within the, the ground domain, for example, which was um, a combination of the ground units in the, in the Army as well as ground units in the Marine Corps, we found a great deal of focus and emphasis on both aspects of readiness, both what we refer to as, as the inputs, right? Uh, better training, doing a better job of maintaining equipment, ensuring you have the right number of people, that all improved, as well as the overall mission capabilities, the output of readiness, the ability of ground units to successfully execute their missions. Uh, by contrast, in, in the sea domain, which includes predominantly the, the, the Navy's uh, ships and submarines, as well as the Marine Corps' uh, ship units, uh, we found that both aspects of readiness, both the inputs as well as the outputs, had declined in overall readiness. Um, there is a, a bit of a difference, it, it seems, in this work between the way that you are looking at readiness and the way that you're measuring it and the way the department is looking at readiness and measuring it. Since 2019, the Office of Secretary of Defense has expressed that the ground, sea, and air domains are captured in the readiness recovery framework. But in 2019, GAO reported DOD wasn't measuring or reporting readiness to perform full-spectrum operations by domain. Tell me about the difference between the way they're looking at it and the way you would like them to look at it. Sure. So the, the way that the Pentagon is looking at it is, is built on, you know, frankly, centuries of tradition, right? There are, there are the military services, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, and, and now the Space Force as well. Um, and they have a, a set way of running their organizations, tracking progress, and so forth. But one of the things that we had noted several years ago is that the way that the military actually functions in the field is as a joint force. So you don't, you never have just the Navy or never have just the Army going into a conflict. They're working in a joint way, which is why we recommended and then Congress ultimately required the department to uh, find a way to report on those, these domains. So air, ground, sea, space, as well as cyber. We felt that it was important for DOD to report readiness on a service basis, but we also felt, feel that it's equally important for them to report on the domain basis. They have not done that yet, and we think that they should. Um, the recommendations that you make, you note in this report that there are five of them uh, that you've made previously, and it seems from the reading that I did hear, that's the biggest disparity, isn't it, that you would like to see the department report in the way that you just outlined, and so far they have not done so. 
That's right. That, that is the biggest disparity. And to give the department credit, they have made a great deal of progress, both in, in addressing readiness challenges as well as the way it goes about doing that. But we do think that this, this is an important way to report on the domain aspect of this in addition to on a service basis. We think that would be beneficial to the department and it would be very beneficial to the Congress as well as the Congress exercises its oversight responsibilities. There's a lot of debate right now, for example, about the, 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 the president's proposed budget for DOD. Uh, the new administration is taking a hard look at priorities and balancing those with resources. Reporting on readiness on a domain basis would be an, an additional input to help inform those very important decisions. Diana, we have about 30 seconds left. We chatted a little bit before we went on the air, and you mentioned that you're glad that you're able to provide this unclassified version of this work um, to what is typically a, a classified report. Why is it important for at some version of this work to get out there so that everybody can see it? Well, I think it's it's important for the Congress to be able to have discussions at a high level about readiness and the department's progress. It's important for the public to have an understanding of how well DOD is doing with the $700 billion plus dollars a year that the department receives from the American taxpayers to execute its missions. And it's, it provides good good oversight. Obviously, we can't get into the details of specific numbers or how far different aspects of the military are, are achieving goals, but it is important to be able to have at least a, a generally informed discussion about balancing resources with the ability to execute on required readiness. Diane, always terrific insight. Thanks very much for coming on. Thank you very much, Francis. You can find a link to that report at govmatters.tv slash resources. And don't forget, if you miss an episode of the show, it's on our website, too. You get a preview of every show. When you sign up for our daily program guide, you just text GovMatters to 58671. I'm back in two minutes. In tonight's event spotlight, ACT IACS Acquisition Innovation 2021 is coming. You'll learn firsthand how government and industry are working together to build adaptability, resilience, speed, and repeatability into the acquisition process. It's happening next Tuesday, April 20th, virtually from 8 in the morning till 4 in the afternoon. You can learn more and sign up govmatters.tv slash events. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business and government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes about how government can use software to find wide area networks to deliver the best digital experience for constituents and staff. 
Government agencies are continuing the transition to the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions Vehicle, EIS, for telecom-related services. Industry experts are calling on agencies to use it for citizen-facing government. Tony Bardo is here. He's Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes Network Solutions. Tony, welcome. It's good to talk to you again. What does the EIS vehicle provide for agencies to make these kinds of transitions, to do the network modernization that they need to do? It's a great question, uh, as you always do lead off with, uh, Francis, and it's good to see you again, talk to you again. But uh, here's, it, it's more interesting really to talk about what it hasn't uh, delivered yet. And uh, GSA fa faced an interesting conundrum when they were uh, putting EIS together and it was necessary to do so and they had the right vision for it and the right ideas to bring in some new blood and new new vendors and new kinds of companies but the the services available to to the government at the time were still the same services that have been around for 20 years um, and that is the the MPLS network um, services that worked during the end of FTS 2001 and throughout the networks contract so um, the, the the new services, the new modern services were just emerging. These are the new SD-WAN, the managed broadband services, and these are the kinds of services that are better equipped for handling the large surge and surges of bandwidth demand for the agencies, particularly at the edge. So what was what the agencies were sort of presented with was here's a new contract and it's got a new timetable and it's got a new scope of work and a new span of work and a new body of of of, uh, of a performance period but it didn't really have the new services that met the goal or the the mantra of transforming so what we saw in some of the early um fair opportunities that uh, that the agencies were issuing and it really took them a long time to start issuing them um but they're they're they they were basically asking for like for like services and that wasn't really a uh, a plan for transforming and it didn't the, many of the fair opportunities unfortunately did not show the the vision for transforming SD-WAN was emerging, so it was a tough call. It was a, you know, we've got to get this contract, new contract out, because the old contract is aging, it's expiring, it's got its uh, limited time frame. So it was an interesting, um, you ask an interesting question. It, it, the platform really wasn't ready there to, to, uh, to transform and leap into transformation and modernization. It's starting to happen, though. You uh, gave me a term before we started recording, and I want to tell, want you to tell me what it means and why it's important. Managed service provider, why does that matter to agencies, and, and why is that concept helpful to them in these transitions, Tony? The concept, concept is really helpful because the, the, pro, the providers and the services and managing them um, makes it easier for the agencies. These, these agency telecom managers have really got it tough. They 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 have this they have this contract that they were uh, compelled to use and and encouraged to use, and they wanted to modernize. Uh, they're running their own networks today every day. They have to issue these 
fair opportunities to compete the business among the uh, providers, the, the prime uh, contractors on EIS. And they've got to do it all at the same time and all with the same workload and workforce that they that they have. So these are really, really tough. Getting Obtaining managed services takes the burden off of the limited staffs of the agencies and lets the lets the um, service providers do the work. So managed service providers can then um, offer these services, manage the networks, manage the uh, security aspects of the networks, manage the routing of the traffic on the networks through the modern architectures of broadband, managed broadband, and managed SD-WAN. Tony, there's always more great ideas to talk about than there is time to talk about them. It's great to talk to you again. Thanks very much. Thank you, Francis. Take care.